I hope you um, held the place here in the 27th chapter of uh, Matthew, and I'll be referring to some verses of Scripture. The execution of Jesus has, fa- has fascinated students of the law and baffled students of the Scripture for centuries. The baffling thing is this. How could one like Jesus be treated in such a manner? In the history of jurisprudence, without question, there is no trial that has ever been more fallacious than the trial of Jesus. Now I said, I referred to it as the trial singular. Actually, there were six trials, a set of six trials, and all of them were illegal. Every one of them was illegal. And there's not a shred of evidence that was ever brought to prove Jesus guilty of anything. On top of that, he was the innocent son of the living God, the most perfect man who has ever walked on planet earth. And yet in spite of these things, he was declared guilty by guilty men. You'll notice that I said he was declared guilty. He was not proven guilty by anyone, but he was declared guilty by guilty men. So that Jesus was declared guilty of crimes that he never committed, and he endured a death that he did not deserve. And by crucifying Christ, his accusers really placed the blame on themselves rather than on him. There is an old English couplet that was written about the traitor Judas, but I think it seems to state the truth for all of his accusers. It goes like this, Still as of old, men by themselves are priced. For thirty pieces of silver, Judas sold himself and not the Christ. There's a little background, I think, that's necessary. I am constantly um, amazed and surprised at the ignorance that we have concerning this event. It has to do with a time to which we cannot return. It has to do with a language that none of us can speak. And it has to do with a series of buildings that no longer are in existence. And it involves three salient points. The first is the type of the trial that Jesus endured. What kind of trial was this that Jesus endured? Was it a Jewish trial or was it a Roman trial? It was both. both. For in the days of Jesus, the, the citizens of Palestine were under the rule of the Romans. The emperor was named Tiberius and he called all the shots. However, the Jews had a court, a council. It it was called the Sanhedrin, and it was made up of 70 men. And it was really a a religious court of law that that discussed and, and settled issues that were primarily religious. By the time of the trial of Jesus, there were two men missing from the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus because these two men had become followers of Christ, had become believers of Christ. Nevertheless, they met in Mass 
to determine the innocence or the guilt of the accused. And they understood that they did not have the power to execute anyone. They had to pass this on to the Romans. They had to be the ones who decided execution. And even though they could find a person guilty, they couldn't execute that person. The Romans had to pass on that. The Romans had to rule for that execution. That's why you'll find interjected into the story the names Pilate and Herod and other officials. So the Jews had their trials, three of them, and they handed Jesus off to the governor of Rome for his final say, for without his vote they could not execute. Had it been that these Jews were under total control as in the Old Testament day, they would have taken Jesus out after the third trial and executed him by stoning. That's the way the Jews executed, by stoning. But because the Romans executed by crucifixion, Jesus was crucified and so fulfilled the prophecy that existed for centuries that Jesus would die on a tree. The second point has to do with the accusations brought against him. Was he guilty of blasphemy or was he guilty of treason? He was guilty of neither. He was declared guilty of blasphemy by the Jews as a result of the three trials by the Sanhedrin because blasphemy was the highest crime of Jewry. It was the crime that deserved capital punishment according to the Jewish law. But when he was brought to the Roman court, the charge was changed to treason because in the high court of Rome, the, high, the, the, the uh, crime that was punishable by death in the Roman court was treason or insurrection. And so thus, he was declared guilty of blasphemy by the Jews and he was declared guilty of treason or insurrection by the Romans. Now, I want you to turn back to chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel. And I want to read beginning at verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter also was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in, sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up, and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy, and what do you think 
And the council, the Sanhedrin said, He is deserving of death. Now that we are reading, this reading is at the second and third trials. He's been to Annas, the old man, the, the former high priest, really by law he was still high priest. And they sent him to Caiaphas, the reigning high priest, and he was presiding over the trials, two and three, where this account is read. And he's not yet heard by the Romans. Now there's an interesting dialogue that appears after Jesus had been handed off to Pilate for the Roman trial. That dialogue is found in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. I'd like for you to turn to that. The 18th chapter of John, beginning at verse 28. Before I read this, I, I would uh, give you this challenge. I, I would like to challenge you to find one proven fact of wrong concerning Jesus. Um, I heard Eddie Lieberman, who is a converted Jew, speaking one night, and he said that a man um, in, in, out in UCLA, on the campus of UCLA, announced that he was going to, to teach a class on the errors, the mistakes, and the sins of Jesus Christ. And he met for the first meeting, and they discussed for 30 minutes the errors and the mistakes and the sins of Jesus, then dismissed the class because they could find none. I, I, I challenge you to find one proven mistake or sin or error in the life of Jesus. Now here's this dialogue that goes on in chapter 18. They led Jesus therefore from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now if they went into this section of the Roman uh, buildings, they would be defiled and couldn't celebrate the Passover because they'd have to go through a period of cleansing. It would take seven days. So they stood outside the praetorium, sent Jesus in. Pilate therefore went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. That's in John chapter 3, verse 14. Pilate therefore entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this of your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Is this something you know for yourself? Or is that hearsay to you? Now, by the way, let me say parenthetically, that's a good question. Is Jesus Christ the king of your life? Is he the king or is that just something you've heard other people say? Now the fear of the Jews was this. The fear the Jews had was that Pilate would not cooperate with them. He didn't like them or trust them and, and vice versa. And knowing the future of their plan, their plot, rested in the hands of this anti-Semite, Semite, 
Pilate, knowing that the future of their plan rested in him, they were afraid he wouldn't cooperate. And Pilate was aware also of the broken relationship that he had with the Jews. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But they were at, 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 you know, at outs with one another, and he needed them, and he knew they needed him. And they both hated and distrusted each other. And so these Jews, in essence, began to blackmail Pilate, and he knew it, and they knew it. The contempt of this man for these Jews is reflected in verse 35 when he said in derision, I'm not a Jew, am I? And you can just see his lips curling up and snarling. It was absolutely detestable to this man. Now the year is A.D. 32, and the date of the month is April the 6th. And it's early in the morning because the trials began long before day while it was still dark. The officiating authority of this Roman trial is a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. He is between the ages of 35 and 45. You had to be 27, at least 27 years of age in order to be qualified to be the governor, a governor, and you had to have some military background. And this took place six years after he became a governor. He was probably in his mid-40s. He was contentious of the Jews. He was insulting and arrogant. He was brutal and insensitive. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records three accounts where he incited the hatred of the Jews. It all took place before the trial of Jesus, and it was something that Pilate initiated. Now, most of these Roman governors who preceded him tried to get along with the Jews, and they had a workable relationship, but not Pilate. I want to mention two of the three of these things Josephus records. One of them was this, that it had to do with the pomp and circumstance of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire's headquarters in that part of the world was at Caesarea. And there was a great deal of pomp and circumstance associated with the headquarters of the Romans with regard to what they call their standard. We would call it a flag, but it was really a big pole that they carried around. And on the top of this pole they had the golden eagle of Rome, or they had the bust of the reigning Caesar. Now, in deference to the Jewish hatred of graven images, most of these governors would remove the bust of the, of the ruling, reigning Caesar in order not to insult the, the, the Jews. They wanted to get along with them, but not Pilate. He put on this, on this pole, this standard, the bust of the reigning Caesar, and had everyone look on him as their God. The Jews were incensed by that. The second thing that Pilate did to incite the Jews was he took some money from their sacred treasury. It was called the Corban. It was the place where they gathered money and kept it for religious purposes and, act, and, and activities. And Pilate stole money from the sacred treasury in order to finance the, uh, the building of aqueducts to bring water in to the city of Jerusalem. And these Jews hated him for it. And so a mob of people gathered. Jesus uh, refers to this later. A mob of people gathered uh, and angry against Pilate. And Pilate had his men in, in civilian clothes armed with 
daggers and with clubs. And while this crowd was, was, was venting their anger against Pontius Pilate, he had them murdered by his plain clothes uh, henchmen. Now there was an opportunity for the Jews to protest Pilate to the reigning emperor whose name, as I mentioned, was Tiberius. There's an interesting article in a book, or in, a, in a section written by Philo, or Philo, the great Jewish Alexandrian scholar. He has this wonderful character study of uh, Pilate. And this is what he tells us about the fact that these Jews were threatening to exercise their right and report Pilate to the emperor for his misdeed. He says, quote, This threat exasperated Pilate to the greatest possible degree. As he feared lest they might go on on an embassy to the emperor and might impeach him with respect to other particulars of his government, his corruption, his acts of insolence, his rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity, end quote. And then Philo says, Pilate's reputation with the Jews stank. And the fact that they could report him made his position entirely insecure. As a matter of fact, they did report him. Now here is Tiberius, the Roman emperor, and he gets these, this report from the Jews about Pilate, and, and he wants you know, he wants peace in the land. He doesn't want any trouble. In essence, Pilate and Tiberius now had a rift going. And Tiberius, uh, for, you know, it stands to reason, was threatening to do away with him. He didn't need these unnecessary problems. Now back to chapter 18 of John and this dialogue that went on between Pilate and Jesus. In verse 33, Pilate therefore entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? I really think Pilate was seeking answers. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. And there is this waffling that's going on between Pilate there with regard to his decision about Jesus. And so Pilate brings up, in verse 39, he brings up a custom that was familiar to the Jews on the Passover. They could ask for a prisoner, and he could release a prisoner, and, and they'd be satisfied. And so he brings up Barabbas, who is in prison at the time. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. Mark calls Barabbas an insurrectionist and a murderer. Luke calls Barabbas one who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and for murder. And John calls him a robber. He's a real class citizen. And I think that Pilate was thinking to himself, now if I put these two men side by side, they'll choose Jesus to be released because, I mean, as bad as they didn't like him, he couldn't be as bad as Barabbas. So he said, whom will I release? And they cried, Barabbas. And Pilate is, is, here is this immoral man, this notoriously brutal man, but he can't figure this out. And he was saying in essence, do you mean that you want this 
robbing murderer, this notorious... The Jews stirred up the crowd to do it. In other words, the Jews were hell-bent on his death, and the Sanhedrin was not seeking evidence or testimony. They were seeking blood. And so Pilate, he, he thinks about the options that he has, and so he decides, well, I know that there's, sometimes they scourge these prisoners. I wish I had time to describe what a scourging was. I can tell you that they had these clubs. At the end of the clubs were attached long strips of leather, and at the end of the leather strips were embedded pieces of bone and stones. And these men would whip these prisoners with these, this cat of nine tails, they were called, 49 lashes. And sometimes they would, as they would whip them, these uh, leather straps would snap around and gouge out their eyes and their teeth. They literally beat his body to the bone. You want blood, there's blood. There's a second, there's another illegality in all of this. A prisoner under Roman authority could not be tortured, but he was. Now I want you to go back to chapter 27 of Matthew right quickly. To, a, to another issue, and it was the issue of this woman, Pilate's wife. Now let me, let me set the, the stage here. Is I'm going to read in a moment in chapter 27, verse 17, that these pagans worshipped many gods, and they believed, their, their belief was that their gods would communicate to them through dreams. And so when they'd have these dreams, they would assume that that was the communication of their god through dreams. Get that background as we read about this woman who had this pilot's wife who had this dream, verse 17 of chapter 27. Uh, verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. There is a magnificent book called The Day Christ Died by a man named Jim Bishop. I've seen that book in, it may be in our library. He writes of a woman named Claudia Procula. We would know her as Mrs. Pilate. This is how he describes it, this marvelous scene. Listen to this. She's in this private apartment high in the southwest tower. Claudio was awakened by the noise of the crowd. Lying in her big brass bed, staring up at the white netting overhead, trying to get awake. The roar from outside sounded surf-like. Claudia called a female slave and asked what time it was. And what excited the crowd? The maid replied, It is the third hour of the morning, and your husband is out in the courtyard listening to a case brought against a man named Jesus. Claudia Procula sat up in bed. She remembered that Caiaphas had come last night with urgent matters presented to her husband. When he left, Pilate explained to her about this man, Jesus, before she retired. Claudia was a true Roman. She believed in many gods and tried not to anger any of them. She heard from some of her husband's aides of this man Jesus, how he had performed miracles among the Jews, 
And now she was worried because she did not want the fate of this man to rest in Pilate's hands. It was possible, she knew, that Jesus might be a God come to earth to test the faith and goodness of these dreadful people. If that were so, he might be displeased with any Roman who dispensed of this case with malice. Claudia Procula, with her dark hair in disarray, asked for a parchment, and her servant brought them. She said she had a dream about a man named Jesus, and her husband must do nothing to hurt him. So she wrote, quote, You must have nothing to do with this just man. The message reached him just before he turned away from the crowd. He read it with a frown, crumpled it in his hand, and turned to see the eyes of Jesus burning on him. Now you know what haunted Pilate? What haunted Pilate was verse 22 of chapter 27. What shall I do with Jesus? His conscience, if he had a conscience, said, there is no evidence of any guilt. The mob said, we want his blood. His wife said, don't touch this man. And his boss said, you continue with this problem and you're gone. What does he do? That is, what does he do with Jesus? Now what he decides to do immediately, with a little brainstorm, he decides that he will apply a self-appointed remedy and get rid of the responsibility. Little water, please. And so his servant brings in this basin of water. Look, he said, as he put his hands in the water and splashed it so that nobody would mistake what he's doing. Look what I'm doing. I'm innocent of the blood of this man. Let his blood be on, not on me. And they cried, let his blood be on us and on our children. And it has been ever since. By the way, we are all very skilled at self-made remedies. Maybe a little baptism will take care of the matter. Or how about a little Sunday school attendance? I'll get me one of those perfect attendance pens until the bars line up and you bend over there and swing out like a swing. Or maybe it'll do good to pay my bills. Or how about being a good daddy? That ought to be enough, and I'll be innocent of this man. But one thing, listen to me, one thing we cannot rid ourselves of, and that is the responsibility concerning the question, what will you do with Jesus? And there is nothing you and I can do that will rid us of that responsibility. It has nothing to do with water. It has nothing to do with church membership. It has nothing to do with being a good daddy. It has much to do with the heart and with submission. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And no one ever stood closer to, the, to changing human history 
than did Pilate. He was at a point where his decision would change the course of history. And I tell you, some of you tonight, perhaps watching on television, are at a, at a, at a crucial point in your life, and your decision can change the course of the history of your life. The question has to be answered in every generation. We are responsible, each of us, with this question. What shall I do with Christ? Now, we do have options. I can be impressed with the person, but unresponsive to him. That is, I can say, I can agree with history, this is the greatest man who ever lived. I'm impressed with him. I've never met anybody like him and never commit my life to him. I have a second option. I can listen to others' opinions, and I can reject him. We want Barabbas, they said. Crucify Jesus. I can listen to the opinions of others. You can follow what other people think about him. You can follow some cult leader, some guru. You can follow the Mary Baker Eddies and the... Joseph Smith's and the uh, David Koresh's of human history and what they think of him. You can follow these people if you wish, but remember that every one of these men and women is a sinner. And they can't get you beyond death. They can just make you feel good till you get there. And they can't take you to heaven when you die because they're in hell. For the only way that a sinner can get from here to heaven is through the innocent blood of Jesus Christ. Or I can follow someone's superstitions and fears. Or I can make up some self-appointed ritual. That's what happened to Pilate. And I can wash my hands from now on, but I cannot erase the decision. In fact, legend has it that that Pilate went mad in Asia Minor trying to get the blood off of his hands. But the only decision that is right to make is the decision that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of the living God, and I want Him as my Master and my Lord. That's the only decision anybody can rightfully make concerning this question. Now, lest some of you have come tonight, and I, I hope that uh, uh, some of you maybe who are watching on television would give me about two seconds, about two minutes to say this. There stands before every person who's ever lived in human history, the man Jesus Christ. He is as much alive now as he was 2,000 years ago. And the, and the setting is different, and they're, 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 the, the environment is not the same. We don't have anything like what was here except one thing. There stands before you the man of history that you have to decide what you're going to do. with. Will you accept him as your Lord and Savior? Would you give him your life? Would you claim him as your, ma- your master and Lord? Would you do it tonight? Would you, wherever you are, finding where the camera is at? Which camera is working here? Middle, put this middle camera. I want to talk right here, this middle camera. Wherever you are, and it's amazing the number of people who watch this service. In fact, we had a group here Sunday night 
who are members of another cult, I'll just come out and call it like it is, they watch this service. Well, if, you're watch, if you're watching tonight, this is my plea. Jesus Christ is God of very God. And lest you stand before him in judgment, when it's too late, give your life to him tonight. And commit to him as Savior and Lord. Right where you are, you can bow, kneel, and say, I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Have you done that? I'm not asking, are you a member of a church? Have you been baptized? Have you lived a good life? What have you done with Jesus Christ? That's the question. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, we stand in the awe of this very moment that's life-changing human history, human history of one's life. And that we, we remember the moment that we faced this decision for the time when we could, dis, could, could deny it no longer, could avoid it no more. We remember the night, the day, the moment when we opened our life to Christ and He came to live in our heart to save us from our sin and to assure us of eternal life to bring joy and fulfillment peace release from slavery I pray that for each man and woman boy and girl I pray that what we decide about Jesus Christ tonight will be the right decision, for I pray in His name, for His sake. In the spirit of prayer, I'll ask you to stand to your feet, would you please? I'm going to ask Mark to sing through this invitation, and heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The unexamined life is not worth a living. What is your relationship to Jesus Christ? That's the question. What are you going to do with Him? While, we, while He sings through it, perhaps you'd like to come and give your life to Christ.